So far in Romans, we've heard the amazing message of God's grace that provides for our redemption from sin, our restoration and renewal from our corruption, and our offer of reconciliation with God. And that message gives us a lot of confidence in our lives. It gives us a lot of confidence as we move forward in life, knowing that we have received salvation through Jesus by faith alone. And this message is truly good news. It's liberating. It's inspiring. It allows us to persevere even in hardship and struggle because we know that our salvation has been secured by Jesus. So think of it. We were once Adam-like, a slave to sin and the recipients of death. But now because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're we're no longer Adam-like, we're Christ-like. We're not estranged from God, we're part of his family. Instead of being under the oppressive reign of sin, we're under the reign of grace. That's good news. And in that good news story of salvation in Jesus, all other roads of reconciliation, all other solutions to the sin problem are closed off. So there's no salvation apart from Jesus. You can't find salvation in the Mosaic law. You can't just obey the commands well enough and find reconciliation with God. You can't find salvation through your own striving, your own morality, or your own self-righteousness. That's a non-starter because there is none righteous, no, not one. Our salvation is offered freely, and it's offered through Christ alone. But this message is open to misunderstanding. Paul addresses these misunderstandings in Romans 6. So, for example, someone might misunderstand that this glorious message that wherever sin shows up, grace shows up all the more, someone might misunderstand that and say, well, then to experience more of God's grace, why don't I keep on sinning? If more sin equals more grace, and I want more grace, why don't I just do more sin? Do you see how this could be misunderstood? It turns this relational reconciliation into a math problem. Um, Or someone might misunderstand, thinking that because we're not bound by the Mosaic law, that we're free to live however we would like. We can do whatever we want to do. Um, That there are no commands that we ought to obey, no distinction between right and wrong. Paul addresses these potential misunderstandings uh, by answering two rhetorical questions in Romans 6.1 and 6.15. And basically, the, the question is the same. Should we continue in sin? And the answer is exactly the same. Absolutely not. God forbid. How could you even suggest such a thing that you would continue in sin once you've tasted of this great salvation? Well, Paul will go on to fill out his answers and address the nuances of each question, but we're going to consider the whole thing together instead of splitting this up into a separate sermons, two separate sermons. We're going to get kind of the 30,000-foot view, and this is the main theme of what we're going to explore. Christians are free from sin's power and therefore are free to live a life of obedience to God in relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, Christians are released from captivity to sin for the true freedom of captivity to grace. Now, 
trying to do all of this in one sermon is really, really difficult. Um, so there are things in this text that I can't explain. I just can't take the time to explain them. God willing, I plan to do like three or four podcast episodes where I talk about some of these things in more depth. And if you have questions about this text or about any of the things that I'm saying this morning and you'd like me to address them more fully, please tell me and I would be happy to do it. Um, it pains me more than you will know not to go into the detail I'd like to go into detail on. But what I want to do is just to give you the overarching reasons why your freedom from captivity to sin is not freedom to continue on sinning. Why instead it's a reason to pursue the f- true freedom of obedience to God and captivity to grace. There are three reasons from this text that I want to give you. Number one, we've been given a new story. Number two, because we've been given a new identity. And number three, because we've been given a new king. So why should we not return to sin? Because we have a new story, a new identity, and a new king. All right, let's begin by considering our new story. Now, here I'm drawing from Romans chapters 6 through 8. If you've read all of Paul's writings, you'll notice that he regularly appeals to the Old Testament to make his points. In earlier in Romans, you could hardly go like a paragraph without seeing a quotation from the Old Testament. He's quoted the Old Testament a lot. And just because you don't see direct quotations in Romans 6 through 8 as frequently, it doesn't mean that the Old Testament isn't there. Instead, it's humming along in the background. Because for Paul, you can't understand Christian salvation apart from understanding the story of Israel's salvation from Egypt. You can't understand your redemption apart from understanding Israel's redemption from Egypt. So what he does often is he he uses that story like a blueprint to structure everything he's going to say. So if you remember from the Ephesians sermon series that we did, uh, this might be reaching a little bit. I think in August of um, 2021, on a sermon in Ephesians, I tried to show that the whole letter of Ephesians is structured along the narrative storyline of the Exodus. Well, he does something very similar in Romans 6 through 8. What he does is give you the story of Israel's redemption so that you can understand your redemption. Here's how he transposes that story into the Christian key. The first chapter is played out in Romans 6. Just as Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea in their exit from the kingdom of Egypt in their slavery to Pharaoh, so too have Christians come through the waters of baptism in their exit from the kingdom of sin and their captivity to it. Just as Israel then entered into the wilderness where they experienced hardship and testing and temptation while they waited for the promised land, So too Christians are now living in the wilderness where we experience temptation and testing and hardship as we pass through this life, waiting for the promised land of the new creation and the resurrection life that we'll share with God forever. Our story and Israel's story are analogous. And for us to understand our salvation, we need to remember and keep in mind their story of salvation. 
the points of contact continue in chapter 7. Because just as Israel sometimes responded to their hardship by romanticizing their slavery, by wanting to go back to Egypt, back into slavery, longing for Egypt in their disobedience to God, so too do Christians face the temptation to romanticize sin and to succumb to temptation and to think that life is a non-Christian back in captivity to sin might be easier and better than life in captivity to grace. And so we're tempted, we struggle with sin, and we're tempted to think life might just be easier if instead of serving Jesus, I just serve myself and sin like I used to. That's what Paul will talk about in Romans chapter 7. But then the final chapter of Israel's redemption is played out in chapter 8. There, God shows up. He shows himself to be faithful and to have steadfast love for his people Israel by bringing them through the promised land safely there as they walk in covenant faithfulness with him. So too, as we examine Romans 8, do we find that in our hardship, God loves us and nothing will separate us from his love and he never leaves us. And eventually he will bring us home to our promised land, the new creation where, we're, where we will experience resurrection life forever. So point by point in Romans 6 through 8, Paul transposes Israel's story of redemption into a Christian register, and he wants us to live according to that story. That story becomes ours through our connection to Jesus. And if you read the Gospels, this is Jesus' story too. Um, He was pursued in captivity by an awful wicked king. So he passed through into Egypt, and then he passed through the waters of baptism, and then he went into the desert where he was tempted, and then he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom as he ushered in resurrection life. Our story and Jesus' story and Israel's story are all the story of redemption. It's all the same story in different keys, and we need to learn to live into that story. We need to reframe the story of our lives according to that story. This is a story that offers us meaning and belonging and purpose. Now, we can try to find meaning and belonging and purpose according to other stories that we adopt for our lives, but for Christians, we must adopt this story. And again, there's much to say about the power of narrative, and I would refer you to our recent Bible conference with Mitch Hawley on the Christian imagination where he talked about this. This story has the power to offer us purpose and meaning and belonging. It helps us make and receive meaning from the events of our lives, and it gives them a redemptive end. What's more, this story gives us belonging. It tells us who our people are, the church, Jesus, God's people. It instructs us in who our authority is, God himself. It tells us where we ought to invest our lives. That's in God's kingdom. This story provides the shape for our lives, and we need to live according to it. It reminds us that we've been released from captivity to sin for the purpose of living before God, of worshiping him. Did you catch it in our Exodus reading this morning? Why did God tell Pharaoh that he was releasing his people so that they could come and worship him? That is our story. We need to grab onto that story, and we need to allow it to to overcome every other story that we tell ourselves. We live according to many, many stories, but this must become the controlling narrative for our lives. 
what the philosophers call a meta-narrative. This needs to become the all-shaping story through which we understand our life and experience and belonging and purpose. This story needs to fold all of your other stories into it. And what it will do is it will dispel false stories and it will rewrite broken stories so that they become stories of hope and healing and redemption. That's what this story does. This is, it's, it's hard to explain. But if you can imagine an Israelite who's trying to make sense of their life, whether it's while they were in Egypt and the trauma they experienced there is they were enslaved in harsh slavery, or whether it's while they were facing temptation and, and while they felt like they just wanted to return to Egypt, whatever they were experiencing, if they could put it in that story, they could think clearly and rightly as a follower of God. And the same is true for us. If this is a controlling story for our lives, the answer to the question of whether or not we should continue in sin is really easy, isn't it? Should we continue in sin? Let me plug that into this story. No, because I've been redeemed from captivity to sin, and now I'm pressing onward to glory and grace. The story gives us the answers to our moral questions. It gives the shape to our moral imaginations and our lives, It tells us how we can participate in God setting the world right. It shows us how we can become characterized by righteousness instead of corruption, marked by captivity to grace instead of captivity to sin. I'd propose that you can take any moral situation that you face, any moral question, any temptation you experience, and if you plug it into that story, you will be able to see it more clearly And even though you might not get all of the answers, that story will point you in the right direction. So what should we do? I'd like to offer three suggestions. First, obviously, become very familiar with this redemption story. If you don't know the story, you can't live into the story, and therefore you can't live out the story. So know the story. Read the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Um, Read it, I'd suggest, in the New Living Translation, and read it all in one Saturday. Just dedicate a day to read the Pentateuch. Uh, There was a time in my life where I was teaching the Pentateuch, and I did not know it well, so I did just that. It was remarkable how influential that was on me and on the rest of my life and on my understanding of what God is doing in the world. Read the Pentateuch. Um, Read it bit by bit. Read it as a whole. Know the story. And then look for that story replayed throughout the Bible time and again in exile in return in Jesus's life and in the New Testament. Know the story inside and out so that you can read yourself into the story. And then I would say, look at all the other places in good literature where this story is retold and grab onto it. So parents, um, let me give you one that you can help your kids see the redemption story. Watch Pinocchio with your kids and see this this, uh, wooden puppet that's made in the likeness of his father but becomes captivated to sin by following after the ways of unrighteousness and pursuing the pleasures of this life on an island unto himself who comes to find that what looks like fun, sin that looks like fun is actually captivating and it turns you into a donkey to work in a mine for the rest of your life until you die. 
And the only thing that can change you is an impartation of grace. And of course, this is a Roman Catholic story, so it's a Mary figure that gives grace. But God gives grace through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and that changes us. And then in Christ, as we connect to him, we go through the waters of baptism, you know, as you do, um, giving up your life for the good of the other, pursuing your father, God, out of love in the danger in the death of baptism, in coming through that, you can come to experience new life as a real boy, as a real human. You experience new life and true freedom, not by doing whatever you want, but by following in the way of righteousness. Look for other stories and help your kids get, this in, get it into your imagination. Allow this to become the controlling narrative of your life and live according to it. But you've got to know this story in order to do that. Um, second, recognize when you're allowing other stories to be the controlling narrative for your life. Recognize when you have allowed a different story to provide meaning and belonging and direction to your life. Whether that's a story as small as the commercial that you'll see on the television, um, as you're watching football, that tells you to have a good and happy life, you just need this product. That tells you the story of redemption and freedom is all wrapped up in money, whether it's something as small as that or the larger stories of our own experience of the broken family in the family history that we keep telling ourselves that destines us to repeat it instead of breaking free of that cycle, of the story of the American dream that tells us that all that you should be living for is a comfortable suburban life, of the story that a good life is being cool, or the story that you tell yourself that you've never been cool and therefore you're never going to be loved by anybody and you can't be loved. Whatever those stories are that you allow to come in to shape your life and to, to interpret your experiences, allow them to be critiqued by this controlling narrative of the, of the scriptures. And when those stories turn out to be lies, set them aside and adopt a new story. Set aside your family history story because you've become a brother and a sister and a mother to Jesus. Set aside the money gives you comfort story and recognize that that comfort can never last, but actually a costly self-giving will lead to true freedom. Allow those stories to be critiqued by this redemption story. Some stories need to be completely rejected, others partly rewritten, but all overtaken by the story of grace and redemption in Christ alone. Third, as you work to read yourself into this story, every week when we gather together here for worship, refresh yourself in the progress of that story. Trace, pull out your bulletin. And, and look at the headings for each segment of this sermon as we move from captivity to sin to our confession and our repentance and then our thanksgiving to God for bringing us out of captivity to sin to our offering of ourselves in sacrifice to Jesus as we feed on his word and we feed on the table and then as we go to live a new life in the, in the kingdom of God. Allow that pattern that you experience every week to become a pattern that shapes every day of your life. Allow coming to the table every Sunday to serve for you what it did for the Israelites when they came to their Passover meal. That Passover meal reminded them of their release from bondage to Pharaoh and their new life in the kingdom of God. 
And every time you come to the table, it's a reminder that you have a Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who frees you from captivity to sin. So as you go from this place, you don't go to live a secular life being caught up in sin, but you go in the name and the freedom of Jesus to live and walk in his ways, taking him on as your deepest identity. Allow the Lord's Supper to re-dramatize your redemption every Sunday. When this becomes your controlling narrative, you have a rich resource in your battle against sin, and it gives you no reason ever to return to it. Okay, that's point number one. This is what Paul's doing in Romans 6 through 8. So I feel good about myself because I preached three chapters in one point of a sermon. Um, keep, keep that in your mind. Adopt it as a story, and it will pay dividends in your life with God. All right, the final two points of this sermon are basically the outworking of that story in Romans 6. We can live free from sin and captivated by grace because we've been given a new identity. This is what Paul talks about in verses 1 through 14. Paul thinks that it is ridiculous that you would want to continue in sin because you have been removed from the kingdom of sin and you've been baptized into Christ, we might say. So let me try to illustrate how absurd it would be for us who have a new identity in Christ and who have been freed from sin to want to continue in it. Uh, consider it in this way. Imagine an Israelite who's walking through the wilderness 10 years after they've been released from captivity to Egypt. He reflects back on the excitement of those plagues against Pharaoh, of the blood of the sacrificial lamb on his doorpost that protected his firstborn son, of his baptism through the Red Sea that then came crashing down on the Egyptian army that brought him from certain death to a resurrection-like life. Then he thinks, these last 10 years in the wilderness have been kind of a drag. What happened to that really marvelous display of grace that we saw at our redemption from Egypt? God's grace back then was really awesome. But right now, life just feels like the same old, same old. Why should, why don't I go back to Egypt? I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere here. Maybe if we go back to Egypt, then God's grace will be even bigger as he brings us out once again. Maybe we'll see God show up again in really marvelous and miraculous ways. That would be really exciting. And after all, slavery wasn't that bad. It's not as bad as wandering around in the wilderness. At least I'd have four solid walls and some fresh food from a garden to eat again. And God would rescue us. That's his job. Do you see how ridiculous it would be for an Israelite to say, because of God's great grace, let me return to captivity. So too would it be ridiculous for us to say, because of God's great grace, it's okay if I sin. Why don't I return to sin? That line of thinking is simply absurd. Think about what this Israelite is overlooking and forgetting. He's just romanticizing his former enslavement in Egypt. He's failing to grasp the miraculous nature and purpose of his redemption. And he's failing to appreciate the present grace of God in his life right now. At a minimum, think of this. God is taking him through a desert as a cloud by day 
to protect him from the heat of the sun and as a pillar of fire by night to warm him in the desert chills. God's grace is present in the mundane, everyday sort of ways, and he's not paying attention to it. I would suggest that you and I are sometimes in the same boat where we think we need to go back, you know, we need to go back to sin maybe, or we just want God to show up in that great grace sort of way, and we're not attending to the great grace that's present in everyday life. Unfortunately, I think especially with with an evangelical Christianity, it's pretty normal for people to operate in a way that says sin isn't a big deal because it's God's job to forgive me in the end. It's God's job to redeem me whenever I want him to. It's God's job. So it doesn't matter how I live. Um, There's a kind of cultural Christianity that turns our redemption into a math equation that says sin plus grace equals redemption. So it doesn't matter if I sin because there will always be grace and therefore always redemption. That's ludicrous. It's insane. And it's counter to the whole purpose of redemption. So how should we think about this? Well, I want to suggest that there are probably two different kinds of people in our room. I think that there are some kinds of Christians who might be tempted to return to their old way of life simply because God's grace doesn't seem as flashy and captivating as it once did. So maybe you had a conversion experience where you saw God radically transform your life and you can really see the new identity that you've taken on. You've been baptized into Christ. You've identified with him in his death and his resurrection and you saw that radical transformation. And down the road, you don't see as big of a change in your life. It seems like things have plateaued out a little bit. And you want to be on that spiritual high, that mountain head once again. I want to tell you that the answer isn't to stop pursuing righteousness in order that you can see a radical transformation again, but instead to persevere in it. If you think the best Christian life is when I'm just experiencing this radical transformation of grace, you need to read yourself into the story of the Exodus where the normal Christian life eventually becomes a wandering through the wilderness, a call to faithfulness and obedience when it's not sexy and it's just a monotonous step-by-step, day-by-day obedience that is just plainly hard. We praise God for our mountaintop experiences and for those times where we see these evidences of grace in our life that the Christian road of discipleship is one of faithfulness even when there's not miraculous grace, or at least when we can't detect it. But then second, for those who are here who would say, I grew up as a Christian, basically. I came to faith when I was five, probably. I never had this mountaintop experience. So, like, how does this factor in for me? I want to suggest that every time someone is freed from captivity to sin, God's miraculous grace is at work every time. Even if you don't have this really scintillating story about how bad you used to be and how good you are now because of God's grace. It's only God's grace that preserves you from sin, so you must continue living according to God's grace. Don't reject it. Don't think 
Holiness doesn't matter. I can live how I want because maybe someday I'll have that story too. Uh, don't make that wager. Because if you read that story of the Exodus, whenever Israelites made that wager and they stopped caring about obedience to God and faithfulness to him, it did not result in God's tolerance. It resulted in God's judgment. Paul's strong denial that Christians can continue sinning needs to be heeded by us. We need to pay attention to it. Um, there are three points of application that Paul gives us to help us do this in verses one through, or in verses two through 14. Here, here are what they are. Number one, remember and reflect on your baptism. Remember and reflect on the meaning of your baptism. You ought to correlate your baptism with the crossing of the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt, uh, both of which were the definitive starting points for your entry into the promised land, entering into the kingdom of God. Baptism, for Paul, is the definitive marker of exit from the empire of sin and entry into the kingdom of God. Now, I know that for some, you are afraid of attributing too much significance to baptism because you've seen this doctrine abused in other places. But what I want to say is you need to affirm what Paul is saying about baptism, that baptism is important in that in our baptism, God is doing something that is analogous to walking us through the Red Sea, parting the rivers, and then crashing that water down on the cosmic power of sin behind us. So if you're, don't, I'm just trying to say, don't get hung up in knots on how important is baptism for my salvation. Instead, understand your baptism in the storied way that it's given to us, which is when you were baptized, you crossed through the Red Sea and you left sin and the kingdom of sin behind. So don't go back to it. So reflect on your baptism. Come to treasure it in the same way that Israel treasured their crossing of the Red Sea. Was it them going through the Red Sea that saved them? No, God saved them. But did that Red Sea crossing have massive significance to them? It really did, and it should for us as well. And drawn all the sim symbolism and imagery that you possibly can. Don't go back through the waters of death to get back to your sin. There's, there's nothing there for you. So number one, reflect on and treasure your baptism. And if you haven't been baptized, consider being baptized and taking on this marker of a transition from the empire of sin to the empire of God. Second, Paul says that we need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's verse 11. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Therefore, think of yourself in that way. Don't think of yourself as living for sin. Think of yourself as living for God. Now, when Paul says to consider yourself dead to sin, he's not saying that it's impossible for a Christian to sin or even unlikely that a Christian would sin. He's just saying that sinning is out, it's out of step with who you are now. Who you are now is someone who's dead to sin. You're not in Adam, you're in Christ. You've been united with him in his death and resurrection. So Paul isn't telling us to pretend that we're dead to sin even though it's not true, he's telling us to recognize what's actually true and to consider it to be true in the way that we live. We have died in Christ, therefore we're free to live for God. We have a new identity, dead to sin. 
So how does this work out? Okay, let me give you one illustration. When you are tempted to respond to somebody in a sinful way, instead of, consider, instead of saying this line to yourself, it's only human that I do this. It's only human that I would get angry. It's only human that I would get whatever. It's only human that I would sin. Remember that you have died with Christ and set off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. So who are you now? You're not Adam for whom it would be natural to lash out in anger. You're now Christ who speaks words of peace and forgiveness and harmony. You take on the new self, the new humanity that's in Jesus. Do you see how that works? You don't excuse it. Now, I I want to help correct some of your theological grammar. Sometimes we say, to sin is to be human. That's not true. When, When you died with Christ, it wasn't just a part of you that died with Christ. It's not like there's the real you and there was this parasite sin that was on you and that died with Christ and the rest of you is just human. No, all of you died with Christ to the core of who you are. So all of you is being remade to resemble Christ. So to sin is not to be human. To sin is to be Adam. We are no longer Adam. So consider yourself dead to sin. Third, Paul says to stop offering yourself up he uses some weird terms, as weapons for unrighteousness, but instead as weapons for righteousness. You can see the military metaphor drawing back to Pharaoh's army and that kind of thing. But what Paul is saying is now that you have a new identity, now that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, every part of you that you used to use to serve sin Every part of you, every talent, every ability, every energy and effort that you used to leverage in service to sin and self, you now need to reroute that and leverage it in service to God and his kingdom, in service to God's people, to building his kingdom. So think about all of the energy that you have expended in pursuing sin and contributing to sin's reign in this world. God wants you to redirect that energy to serving him and his kingdom, to living in obedience to him. Now, for those of you who were saved later in life, you can probably quickly identify the talents and abilities and energies that you leverage towards ungodly ends. And and you can probably identify quickly what you need to change and how you ought to use that in sudden service to God. For a lot of us who grew up in Christian homes, I think this is what Paul would want us to do. Wherever you are apathetic about how how you are using your life and skills and ability, and wherever you think of your skills and your talents and abilities only as serving common ends, going to work, you know, getting jobs done around your, your house, God wants those abilities and talents to be transformed, not only for those things, but also for the good of his people and his kingdom. So reroute your talents and serve God with them. All right. So you've been given a new identity, dead to sin, alive to God. Live into that identity as part of this story. Third then, why is it that we should not sin and instead pursue lives of obedience? It's because we have a new king. Because we have a new master, a new king, we must not sin. 
the logic in verses 15 through 23 goes something like this. Whatever you offer yourselves up to, you essentially become a servant to it. If you give yourself over to sinful behavior, you become a slave to sin. And if you give yourself over to obedience to God, you become a slave to God. So there are just two options. Are you going to be a slave to sin or a slave to God? Now, this slavery metaphor is a little uncomfortable when we look at our national history. Paul seems a little bit uncomfortable with it when he sort of hedges and says like he's just using a human analogy. This analogy will break down because God is a very different kind of slave master, we might say, than sin is. But the analogy is serviceable. The cruel overlord pays his slave wages. Do you want to know what sin pays? He pays them the pocket change of death. He's a cunning master who convinces people to serve him, and bit by bit throughout their lives, they've been so accustomed to his rule and his ways that they don't even realize that they're in captivity anymore. But the paycheck at the end of the day for serving sin is always death. It's death in different forms. It's relational death, emotional death, societal death, spiritual death, but it's death through and through. And Paul says that that master will always pay you the wages of death if you continue to serve him. So don't serve him anymore. And when he speaks to his Jewish readers in this section, he just tells them that sin has hijacked the law. So just obeying the Mosaic law won't get them out of that captivity. They need a new inbreaking, a new power, the power of grace. And they need a new master and a new king, Jesus. So if this master sin pays his slaves the wages of death, those who are redeemed from slavery to sin and who pledge themselves to their new King Jesus, they come to find that they're not paid any wages at all because what they get, they could never earn and they could never deserve. So instead of getting wages for serving King Jesus, we get a gift, the gift of righteousness and eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian service to Jesus plants seeds of this life and righteousness wherever they go. Instead of death, there's life and righteousness. And they spring up with the characteristics of life in God's kingdom, where there's love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and kindness and self-control that shows up in this life that will continue to grow in the life to come, that will blossom fully then. And what we call that is eternal life. The implication of God's offering to his servants this gift of righteousness and eternal life is that we could never perform well enough to earn it. We could never do it on our own and we can never deserve it. We can only find it through the gift of grace. And in that grace, we find true life. But that way of life is antithetical to walking in the way of sin where there's only death. So we should take note that the options between serving sin and serving God has no middle ground of serving ourselves. To serve ourselves is to serve sin again. As David Foster Wallace puts it, when you serve yourself and when you worship yourself, you become a slave in your own skull-sized kingdom. You're captive again. You're not free. So don't buy the lie that 
America wants to give you, that you can be an autonomous individual living freely to yourself, doing everything you want to do. You can only serve sin or serve God. Those are the two options. And if you serve yourself, you'll become a slave to yourself and you'll never taste the freedom of living to love others and finding freedom in God alone. As I close, I want to read a lengthy quote from one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Christmas sermons when he articulates this better than I could. I tried like five times. He kept saying it better, so I want to leave you with his picture of true freedom that is not found in sin, that's found in God's love, in captivity and service to God, in God's grace alone. This is what he says. God's truth is God's love. And God's love makes us free from ourselves and for others. To be free means nothing less to be in love. And to be in love means nothing less than being in the truth of God. The man who loves because he has been made free by God is the most revolutionary man on earth. He challenges all values. He is the explosive material of human society. He is a dangerous man. For he recognizes that the human race is in the depths of falsehood. And he is always ready to let the light of truth fall upon his darkness. And he will do this because of love. It is also true that people cannot find truth and freedom unless they stand under the law of God's truth. A people remains in slavery until it receives and wants to receive truth and freedom from God alone, until it knows that truth and freedom will lead it into love. Yes, until it knows the way of love leads to the cross. If people would really know this, then it would become the only people who could rightly be called a free people, the only people which does not become a slave to itself, but the slave of the truth of God and therefore free. What Bonhoeffer is telling us is that true freedom is to become free from sin and free from ourselves. In giving up ourselves for others in the cross-shaped life of Jesus, in adopting that cruciform life so that we may find true freedom and love in the truth and life of God. So what is true freedom? True freedom is adopting the Exodus story as your own, taking on this new identity and serving your new king. True freedom is to re embrace redemption from captivity to sin and to become a captive to God's grace in Christ. Let's enter into that freedom together. God, we thank you for this great freedom and we confess that we are prone to wander back into captivity to sin. So remind us of what true freedom is. Remind us of this story. Assure us of our new identity and bind us to our new king for all of our days. In Christ we pray, amen.